a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Well, hey, guys. Well, hey. Oh, hey. Sup, friend? What are you guys drinking this week? I'm back on white wine today. Ugh, I was wondering, winding it up. Hey. Good for you. Yep. I, uh, I'm drinking a nice cup of mint tea, but it's specifically for heartburn, because that's where I'm at right now. Mm. <laughs> all good, though. It's all good, but it's a really great tea. It's by Earth Mama. Oh, it's a blessing for anyone who's listening who is pregnant, and you're experiencing heartburn, or you have morning sickness. They have great herbal teas. They're so delicious. Um, so, yeah, that's nice. what I'm having. That is uh, our official endorsement this week from the Woman of the Cloth. As a person. Tea products. <laughs> woman of the Cloth. <laughs> Bring in the private jokes back. Love it. That's not even yes. a callback at this point. Nope. Um, <laughs> as a non-woman of the cloth and a person that cannot get pregnant and that does not struggle <laughs> with regular heartburn, I can also vouch for how good this tea is. So <laughs> you don't have to fall in those categories to enjoy <gasps> this tea. Wonderful. Yeah. I just wanted to give you that gift. Good. Um, I'm drinking a protein drink, just a boring old strawberry protein drink, because I'm thirsty, but also hungry. And this is like the perfect drink for that. <laughs> Fantastic. So many birds with jo- stones and stuff. I was going to say, yeah, Josh is getting his protein and <laughs> beefing it up, ready hey, to go for hey, this if podcast. I'm going to be a Theo bro. He's on his recovery. Yeah. You got to get in that protein. <laughs> He's on his, post, his post-workout yes. <laughs> regimen. <laughs> Sorry, that's mean. Um, Josh, you walk so much. You don't need to work out. You Like every Marco Polo you send us and every TikTok I've ever seen you in, you've been walking. Actually, fact. And I get paid to stand for my job. Stand and walk. So There you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. I do walk a lot. Mm-hmm. The original um, standing desk. It's just a yes. counter. Actually, yeah. The barista counter really is the original standing desk. Um, so I saw this really interesting tweet this week and it just like kind of got my gears turning a little bit. So I wanted to bring it to you guys and see what you thought. Love it. Uh, this is from at underscore Karen J Gonzalez. I don't know her personally, but she pointed out one time my friend and I were discussing Calvinism and she called it Swiss slash French theology. (laughs) And I always... We'll remember that because all theology is from a particular social location, yet somehow white European theologians are treated as if their work is completely neutral. Whoa. And I've never thought about that before. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Can you hit me with that again? Give me the full tweet again. I need another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need another dip. Let's do another go round. One time my friend and I were discussing Calvinism. And she called it Swiss slash French theology. And I always remember that because all theology is from a particular social location. Yet somehow white European theologians are treated as if their work is completely neutral. Mm. (sighs) To be honest, Mm. I get how we end up in that mess because like colonialism, white patriarchy, like it's just like a fact of the matter that like white Europeans have made a point to domineer the world for the last couple hundred years. So, mm-hmm. of course, okay. white theology is going to be treated as the norm, as a byproduct. But I find that really interesting because I think that, in particular with Calvinism, it, at least the way I've heard it, it doesn't typically get tied to like a certain place in time and like as it being a byproduct of a certain place in time. Like, of course, like people know the history of Calvinism. That's not what I'm trying to say, but like, I guess I've heard lots of people talk about Jesus 
as like fitting in a very specific historical context. Like this is why Jesus said these things. This is the context. This is what he's referring to. This is why what he's referring to is like revolutionary for the time. Mm, Yeah, right. But I don't hear a lot of people giving historical context to people's theology that they come up with. Like it's usually treated as like a, like completely neutral from its origin. Sure. So how do we fix that? What should we do with that? I think it depends on what theology you're talking about. So do you think it is important that we tie theology to a specific location and time? Hmm. I would say yes, because we now have a point in history to look at and to say, okay, so what was happening in the world? What was what was it about this era that influenced this train of thought? But I'd also say no, and I think part of me is because it's not so much about the time or the uh, location on a timeline that is important, but who it is that created it. And I'll give an example. So like the 80s, yes, there's a lot going on, but when I think of womanist theology, I don't initially think of the time in history in which it was created, mm. I think about who it was that created womanist theology and the fact that it was a theology that centers around the experience and the perspectives of black women, in particular African-American women. Like that is what is important, not so much because it was in the 80s, but because of who it was that established it. But I think that's what Josh is getting at is like, is it important to know the the background and the influences of the founders of specific of the founders, yeah, of but I don't know if I don't know if the time necessarily because womanist. What if womanist theology was created in the 1600s? Like one, we wouldn't have ever heard of it because women couldn't be theologians like forever ago. So I well, so then maybe I would say that yes, it does matter. I see what you're saying though. With uh, we need to make sure that we highlight the people who theologize. Yeah. Because, like, Hitler had a theology. I know that's just mm. an extreme example, but, like, Whoa. Hitler totally had a theology Zero about Zero to 100 people. just now. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, uh-huh. that's obviously, like, worst case scenario. But, like, Luther was a product of his time and place. Luther was pretty anti-Semitic, too. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. that is important to know. Like, we can't just treat his theology as if it existed in a vacuum and exists completely independent of who he was as a person. Like, who he was as sure. a person influenced how he came to his theology. Yeah. Ooh. And I don't like it when people separate that. Not that I hear a lot of people do that explicitly, but I think it happens implicitly by way of us not talking about who people were and how they came to the theology they came to. Right. Sure. I think the opposite side of that coin, though, is when someone finds out that Luther does have writings in his bodies of work that are anti-semitic the other side of the coin is basically like oh well then he must not be right about anything and just like completely discount the ideas he offered Mm. to the world right like i think there's a middle ground there somewhere where like Mm -hmm. we can't expect figures of history to be squeaky and shiny based on our current expressions of values which actually i think is very humanizing yeah like i feel very comfortable agreeing with some things some people say, and disagreeing with other things they say. Like Greg Boyd, great example. I'm pretty familiar with him. Mm-hmm. I like some of the stuff that he says. I'm not completely sure I'm on board with everything he says. Yeah, right. But I feel comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just like the mindset we should have for most, if not all, theology. Yeah. Like, I hate to like keep harping on Calvinism, but like I just feel like it's such a classic example because like there's literally an ism named after John Calvin, and it's not a denomination. Like it's a, I guess it'd be a systematic theology. Right. Right. Yeah. That in, yes. that does inspire certain denominations, but. Right. Based off of all one person. Or I guess John Wesley is a great example, too. Like started. Totally. The Wesleyan Church and Methodism. Mm-hmm. Emily, you've mentioned before John Wesley having like some stuff in his background that like you're not a huge fan of or that the Methodist Church isn't really a huge fan of. Oh, right? yeah. What are the summary of those and how do you deal with that? Uh, Well, for one, a big proponent, the idea of needing to bring God to the Native Americans and how he went about doing it 
and basically downgrading their own theology and trying to whitewash their beliefs by saying, no, this is really how God is present in the world and blah, blah, blah. And that changed over time, but you can see it in a lot of his writings, which obviously modern day Methodists are like, yeah, no, we don't really agree with that entirely. Um, That would be probably the biggest one that comes to mind. What do you think about theology being tied to a specific place? Like, for instance, Greek Orthodox believe slightly differently than Ethiopian Orthodox. Like, their theologies are Mm -hmm. different based off of their location. And I know that some people would, like we talked on our last episode about predeterminism, and we didn't even talk about the genetic fallacy that a lot of people like to bring up, where, like, just Mm. because you grew up in a certain place usually predetermines what religion you'll be, and therefore that invalidates it, which it doesn't. That's a fallacy. But, like, there is, there are different markers of belief regionally. Sure. And, like, should we be more specific about that? Like, would that be helpful for anything? Like, is it helpful to call Calvinism Swiss French theology? Because in my mind, it's, like, pretty similar to the way that tying Calvinism or other movements from that time ties it to enlightenment thinking. Like, by couching it in history, you, like, tie it to all the other things that are happening around that time. So shouldn't we also tie things to their location if we're going to tie things to a certain time? Yeah, I like that. Mm, it just brings yeah. more of a context. I think so. Yeah, I can appreciate that. That that was actually a kind of a recent epiphany to me because I feel like our current educational model is basically... At least this is how it felt to me. It was like a lot of our tests taking Emily in at Laurel High School was memorize the dates, memorize the facts so you can pass the test, whatever. Mm -hmm. And like only just recently I was speaking with my friends over on the whiskey bench and I was presenting on one of my favorite Enlightenment philosophers. Well, Enlightenment era, but he was kind of the founder of like romantic philosophy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And this was a French Swiss dude. Which even then, I'm like, oh yeah, he is kind of contemporary to people like John Calvin. How funny is that? But like, on the whiskey bench, I finally pieced it together that like my favorite philosopher of the Romantic era is John Jacques Rousseau, and my favorite classical music composer is Brahms. And I was like, mm. oh look at that! Like that's that that they're working in the they're they're swimming in the same waters as it were. And yeah, I I do think that brings a almost like a fresh context like you can learn about either man but what, you know when you learn that maybe some of Rousseau's writings were influencing the way Brahms was introducing a lot of like emotionality to his music you know just connecting the dots is like it's extremely helpful so mm. i like that move i like that what it gives us yeah and that's honestly that's kind of a recent reframing of how I've heard postmodernism explained. Cause I, I feel like postmodernism, especially from like political pundits and modern day philosophers, gets a bad rap for, you know, just being like the movement of subjectivity and experience. But I heard someone basically say, like, no, postmodernism is just demanding that we fit ourselves in a context and not assume that because we're the ones alive today that we are more all-knowing than the people 200 years ago. Hmm. Who says that? I, I heard um, the co-hosts of Another Name for Everything, which was Richard Rohr's old podcast. That's the way they, they framed postmodernism, is more of a demand for context. Interesting. I've never heard that definition before, but I kind of like it. Because in that way, it's helping you frame what the subjective experience was of someone like Brahms or Rousseau or John Calvin. Like if you understand all the influences going on, just like if you were to like, if somebody was to hear about you, Josh in 200 years, they might be speaking very specifically about like how you helped influence something through Ravel, but they wouldn't be gaining the insight of like where you work, the kind of people you see at work every day, the city you lived in, like, during Josh's time when he was helping develop this, like the world was talking about all sorts of things, politically, economically, 
environmentally. So in this Richard Rohr podcast, basically they were framing postmodernism as let's understand that element of subjectivity and experience of the people we're studying in the past so that we can see like the full scope of why they might have put those particular ideas out there or works of mm. art. Or- I mean, that's basically just biography. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. I feel like I've heard that done for people like that or even like famous Greek and Roman philosophers. Like you almost never talk about Platonist philosophy without talking about Plato because yeah. like a good historian, a good biographer knows that those are like inseparable. Like you have to talk about both as much as we know about both. Right. But so do we have um, a duty, you know, Josh, you, you and I were raised with elements of Calvinism, if not full blown, like five point Calvinism, but we didn't necessarily get taught the origins of like that theological founder in John Calvin. Do we have a duty though to like realize where we're not putting that like due diligence into like the way we're being raised or the way we think nowadays? Mm-hmm. I feel like on some level we must because I feel like I've heard a ton of theology described as if it exists almost necessarily, like as if it exists not by human creation, even though everyone knows it's by human creation. Like, cause like we just try to ascribe language to what we think is happening. Like kind of like you pointed out on our last episode, Emily, but I just feel like I've heard very little contextualization of that within the church. Mm. And that frustrates me. I think like to hear people point out that like specific theologians came to specific theologies because of specific things in their biography. Like that just has so much more meaning to me and it makes so much more sense. And I think should have more grounding for us. Right. Okay, so what about America? <laughs> what about it? What is... Because <laughs> uh, I guess we should talk about America because like... Elephant you know, it's in, in the, the room. Name. Yeah. Because like we can talk all day about like history, but like what about modern day theology? Like is there any theology that is American specific or like delineates within America? Or another thought, are there any theologies, American specific, that have delineated from other theologies historically? Mm. Oof, that's a good question. Now I feel like I'm taking a quiz because I'm racking my mind for what I know. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Bonus points if you can name the 95 theses, Stephen. Just kidding. They're all boring. They are all boring and very specific. Off the top of my head. Here's one I've been thinking about for a while. Shoot. Is the prosperity gospel linked at all to Calvinism? Oh, how is your mind making that connection? My mind makes the connection because of Max Weber's work, the capitalism and the Protestant. No, no, no. What does he call it? The spirit of capitalism and the Protestant work ethic. Yeah. And he basically, actually, it's funny. I mentioned the 95 theses. He like ties together how like the concept of indulgences sort of gave rise to this belief among some reformers early on that like, how would you measure who is the elect? Like, well, you would measure who the elect is by who God blesses, like God blesses the elect. And then that very quickly turned into like the wealthy must be the elect because God has blessed them. And so like knowing that in the back of my mind, like from a more sociological perspective, because that was like a big early sociological work. Like that to me sounds like early prosperity gospel, <laughs> which is so ironic to me because I feel like Calvinists love nothing more than to harp on prosperity gospel preachers. Mm. But they just why, seem so similar to you, me now. Why do you think that is though? Like why do I think that prosperity gospel possibly came from Calvinism? Yeah. Or why do you think um, Calvinists like to hate on it so much? That too, yeah. The first I don't one, know. Okay, so the first question, I feel mostly convinced by that because of Max Weber's point of view, like pointing out that very early on, and I don't think very many Calvinists today would agree with this, to be fair, or anyone who considers themselves part of the Reformed tradition. I don't think many people would actually think this from their camp. But like for him to point out that like early on, 
it was semi-common for a while to believe that God blessed you if you were the elect by making you richer. And so therefore, the rich people must be the elect and the people that God blesses, like in this kind of like circular reasoning kind of thing. And so, but wow. he, then, he then ties that to like the societal impact of like the Protestant work ethic and like working hard for money and like how that basically gave us capitalism in the end. And so maybe it's just due to the fact that like we live in a capitalist we live in a capitalist society and people tend to be Christian here. And so yeah. it just like naturally happens that those paths would be crossed again. It might just be I coincidence. Could, I could see that. And maybe, it would, I mean, it could, it would probably be different if we weren't a capitalist society mm. and we weren't predominantly Christian. <gasps> oh, that's a good point. Does the prosperity gospel exist much outside of America? <gasps> Is the prosperity gospel the American theology? <laughs> My gut reaction is yes. I'm kind of liking that train because I can't, I can't get out of my mind. Okay. So if we are going to speak about the Swiss French context and other philosophies happening at the time, like we're, we're like John Calvin is like just before the enlightenment, like the seeds of the enlightenment are like starting to blossom. Right. And in some ways I think you could probably, sorry, Martin Luther, not John Calvin. In some ways, I think you could say Martin Luther helped forward the Enlightenment in a way because the, as far as I understand, the crux of the 95 Theses is basically like, we don't need the priest to be reading the Latin to us. And like, that's like the Protestant thing, right? Is like almost like a decentralization from... Actually, the crux of the Theses was mostly to do with the indulgences. No, that's true. That's yeah. fair. In which case, your argument, I feel like, is pretty tight. But I'm thinking about individualism and how that comes with Protestantism, as I understand it, mm. right? Like that decentralizing, yeah. like we don't need the clergy to like read us the Bible in mass every week now. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets a Bible as literacy improves, as the enlightenment kicks off, right? Yeah. And in, in that way, I do feel like that snowballs into like a modern, like it's called a Protestant worth work ethic because like individualism is almost implied Mm. feels like to me so if individualism is implied sure. then like if you if you believe that wealth is the blessing that makes you elect then the harder you work the more wealth you get i don't know you get like bootstrapism you get a lot of like that radical individualism mm -hmm. whoa okay and that would be very american yeah you know what i can't you opinion. know what i can't wait for is for our friend Jeff Hall to hop in the Discord after this episode. Oh, because like yes. coming from England, right? Like he's he's over in the UK. I know he sees things differently, and like I, I I love the fact that we have people in our community that are outside of the US or like Victoria, Australian and Canadian. Mm -hmm. Like the backgrounds we have in our small Discord group now, even. I've learned a lot from these people because like they don't see things in the in the American milieu that I was raised in, you know? Yeah. It's very curious. Really, truly a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> you see nice. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay, that reminds me of this other tweet that I saw earlier this week. And it was someone who was like, How long is it before we have somebody saying, I come from the Hillsong tradition? Oh. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny. Like that. That's a funny tweet. But then, like, after seeing it this tweet about Swiss French mm -hmm. theology, like, oh, actually, maybe that's not that far off. Yeah. Like, maybe that is really honest to say, oh, I come from a Hillsong specific context. Right. Oh, okay. Like, I come from Australian theology. And that wouldn't be a bash. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's yeah. not, it would just be to have a social location of where you come from. Mm. Do you think then that with with the advent of our digital age, that maybe like the actual Ooh. location, like Swiss French matters less. And now we're talking like oh, we've almost lost that distinction or we're, I that's a really or, good or I question. bet we're about to lose that distinction because now Ooh. any philosophical mm. tradition can be born anywhere. Yeah. Is it going to be website specific? I mean, if if Is we're talking podcast specific, if we're talking, wait, okay, if we're talking Hillsong tradition, then we definitely get to talk liturgist tradition. Yes, yeah. totally. Holy crap! Or maybe like 
I don't know. There's like lots of people doing theological and religious work all over the internet. Like I can think of tons of people off the top right. of my head that either have podcasts or are viral on Twitter or TikTok or like somebody. Like people are producing things lots of different places and gaining mm. pretty substantial mm. followings, which right. is incredible and fascinating. Oh, yeah. And this is kind of absolutely Josh. What's the book you always mention uh, where it's like the, the rise of network Christianity? Oh, yeah. Um, it's called the, the Rise of Independent Network Christianity. Is that not what we're talking so about? The, these sociologists, <laughs> yeah, um, it's been a while since I've mentioned this, so brief rundown. It's these two sociologists um, who are both Christian. They talk about this in their methodology. It's, it's a very interesting perspective. Um, so they're conducting what's called participant observation long-term research, where they mm-hmm. do interviews and, like, do really deep dive studies into individual churches. It primarily focused on places like Bethel and IHOP and the places that they network out of and the ways that they network together, despite having different beliefs about things. They interview quite a few higher up people who wanted to remain anonymous for the study, but like consented to be part of the study, which is very interesting. So they conclude in the long run, that what they are documenting and observing in these different like branches and waves of Christianity across America, that they are observing not just what they consider to be a new wave of Christianity in the same way that like we've had quote unquote great awakenings happen in the US throughout history. Yeah, right. They argue that they're not just documenting a new wave of Christianity, but a new form of religion that has not been documented yet. Oh. In that, uh, they are observing different religious organizational structures and tendencies that do not closely resemble religious institutions previously. Like, they more closely resemble an organizational network, like a business or like a, or like a government of sorts, more so than like a typical religious structure. So the typical religious structure would be the United Methodist Church, right? Yeah, with like, like a governing body or a governing person. With like a hierarchy. Something like okay. that. Whereas, I mean, I feel like the Highline Media Network is a perfect example of like, we are a collection of loosely connected podcasts, loosely connected. I mean, like I, I host a few of them, but like there are different ideologies, different beliefs, different philosophies that are discussed and believed like- People on the Into podcast don't agree with Ravel people all the time or Whiskey Bench all the time. And yet we're still like willing to collect ourselves under the same banner, right? Mm-hmm. That's true, but I would argue that's more common to like a typical denomination structure. Oh. Like there's still some sort of like overarching thing keeping them within the same walls. Oh, like a single theme. Like ours is. Yeah. We're normal people. We all have day jobs. Yeah. Maybe to like branch out the analogy to something else, it would almost be like something I'm familiar with. There you Um, go. It would almost be like (laughs) if there was a handful of coffee shops, not just across one city, but across a whole state. And despite being very distinct businesses with distinct business models, they started like trading staff. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Okay. Okay. I get that. I see that example. So, like, the reason that they come to this conclusion is that all of these churches are very adamant about being independent of a denomination, but also they are adamant about not becoming a denomination themselves. Bethel Mm -hmm. talks about this, like, all the time. Also, so does IHOP. But there's, like, a growing number (laughs) of these churches, and they, like, continue to, like, grow and network with each other, which is so fascinating to me. And right. so I guess uh, I think this, this is the uh. thing you were trying to tie together, probably, Stephen, is that I think you could argue for something like that happening on the internet. Like, even I do that sometimes. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I manage the socials for Ravel, and like, I want to make cool internet friends who like do similar things to us. That makes sense for us. We're like, whether you like say we have the same type of audience, or like, I want to get to know more people who are doing this work, or et cetera. Like, I think it's a natural tendency for us humans to, like, make social ties based off of, like, a thing that we're doing. Yeah. And I think we totally do that with theology, and especially in the digital spaces. Right. Absolutely. 
And I think because we now have a digital space, it happens more often than it did before. Is Instagram theology different than Twitter theology? Like, is the theology found on each platform distinctive (laughs) to the attitudes of that platform? Okay, Um, let's. I'm not on Twitter, so I'm not the person to ask. Can we swap Facebook for Instagram, Josh? Because I (laughs) feel like the differences there are more striking. Uh, Oh, how so? Well, speak more to that. Well, I don't. Why do I care? I. You were the one who brought this up. I know. I. (laughs) I detest Facebook. I can't explain why I think Twitter is a much better place to be, but like I effectively quit Facebook like eight months ago and I feel like my life has gotten better. Just my like my emotional equilibrium is a lot higher. Mm. And so like maybe that's just informed by like opinions I have of Facebook or like enough pattern recognition where I just like, you know, conversations quite often devolve into uh, just like backstabbing and constant like ad hominem attacks, which I've heard people mm-hmm. make that exact same argument for Twitter. Like that's all Twitter is, but it's way worse on Facebook for some reason. Okay. So here's the thing though, is like, I, I feel like the social medias are built in such a way where Twitter not only encourages parasocial relationship, but I feel like it's more built for it. Like it's very like one to many, I have followers that I have never met in person. I mean, like Josh, like Twitter is how you and I met and it took yeah, us like literally. how many years Aww. before we actually like actually talked to each other. But Facebook, I don't know. The, the infrastructure is built around like you specifically go seek friends and you begin by seeking friends that like, you know, in mm-hmm. person. Right. So I, I feel the toxicity from Facebook being, I'm going to get in an internet conversation that doesn't carry nearly as much weight as a Twitter argument does because I don't know the person, but the person I do know personally on Facebook is going to say the exact same things and I'm going to feel worse about it because I have to like see them in the office on Monday. Right. So in that way, Mm. man, but I don't know how does that inform like the theologies of Facebook, the theologies of Twitter being different? Well, and maybe that's, it's difficult because everyone has such unique perspectives or experiences with each of those platforms. So like you were just saying, some people would make the argument that Twitter is the place that disagreements and, you know, toxicness can come out mm-hmm. more so than Facebook. But like for you, your experience is that Facebook is the platform that does that more often. Right. So maybe it's just an individual perspective. And mm-hmm. because it's so individualistic that maybe there isn't a theology or at least one that is widely accepted or universal. That's interesting though, because like Twitter, you know, Twitter is not subdivided like Reddit is right. There's subreddits dedicated to specific topics with specific web handles, but like people can talk about progressive Christian Twitter and it just happens to be a collection of people that like unofficially belong to that group. You can also talk about NBA Twitter, right. Or podcasting Twitter. Or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like it's very unofficial, very uh, it's, it's again decentralized. I feel like I've strayed from Josh's original question, though. Josh, will you remind me? No, of- I like that you keep highlighting that it's decentralized. Oh, okay. Um, what intrigues you there? Because not only do I think some platforms work better than others for people to network with, like I think Twitter is a great example because, uh, like I don't really participate in this, um, but I've seen a, some people I follow participate in what they call weird Christian Twitter. Like they use hashtags to find each other and to have conversations and like to form meetups. And it's like tons of people from like at least across the country, if not like around the world. Yeah. And it's not a ton of people. Like it's obviously only a relatively small amount of people, like maybe a couple thousand. Right. Right. But they've totally used it to like form parasocial into social relationships regarding theology even if they disagree with each other i think that that's kind of what i'm interested too is like do certain platforms create different ways of doing theology not just like a specific theology tied to a platform like i feel like twitter Mm. offers a very different experience for discussing and replying than facebook does because facebook you can just write out like a thousand word paragraphs rant. same with instagram yeah. even comments on instagram it's terrible 
which is clear, like even, even just look like scroll Instagram and you realize that Instagram was never built to be a place where like huge comment wars happen, right? Like just right. the barriers to like, it's annoying to chat on Instagram for me. The, in, the notifications are bad to get you back to a chat. The reply feature is bad. And like Facebook offers you the same thing. It's a little more organized. And if uh, I feel like this is the thing we're highlighting, but the way even we started this tangent of the conversation is we're, we're speaking of Facebook and Twitter as if they are places in the same way we would talk about like Geneva or yeah. Redding, California, mm. right? Like we're speaking of mm-hmm. them as places we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I, I think that's the most fascinating thing is like the line between physical and digital is just completely breaking down in our age. Like we're witnessing that wall come down you know do you think we'll witness it even more uh in regards to theology maybe maybe i mean i even think about it how far will it go as far as like governments go yeah oh yeah totally because at at a certain point it almost feels like a government is kind of an antiquated you know like we have these borders and like i'm not (laughs) not advocating that we just like get rid of all government and now like zuck rules the world um, but yikes! Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that how far that breakdown will will go. But I do think it's already happening in theology. Even like weird Christian Twitter is a perfect example of it. You know. We're gonna take a quick break to say a few thank yous. Then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com slash ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at RavelPod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, The Whiskey Bench. This is garbage in yeah. every way. Well, and I, this is a whole other conversation. it's in the museum. It. So it's like even it is a in the bad museum, game. Not for you. Even a bad and I, game. This is a conversation about what I would consider the degradation of art. And I don't know if it's some sort of like narcissistic movement that has hit us. But art like that, I think, is some sort of weird infiltration and degradation or bastardization of what art is for humans. And now back to the conversation. When it comes to like social media and stuff, do either of you find maybe either in what you post or like what you see, do you find that like controversial theology or what some people consider controversial or heretical theology, do you find that those types of posts do better or like generate more attention or like, do you think that a certain type of theology performs differently on social media because of the nature of social media? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I feel like social media is specifically tuned to like attacks or like negativity in a way, you know, like Mm -hmm. just, so I'm I'm going to speak in Twitter because that's that's where I go every day. Like the effect of someone tweeting something disparaging about, you know, a Calvinist or like Rob Bell. If that one person you follow, Josh, tweets that and you tap the like button, Twitter now shows me that you liked it. I don't follow that person. Yeah. But right. So like it encourages that network effect of like that splintering and like exponential growth of impression based on how yeah. many people interact with it. And I I mean, like, I don't think it's any, it's, it's not a new revelation that algorithms are built to encourage that interaction. And I think that social media companies understand if you're going to do well, you're going to define a very clear in-group and out-group and then make fun of the out-group. Mm-hmm. And then the network effect of notifications and scrolling your wall takes over. Do you think that's a downfall for theology? I don't know. That is a really difficult one to answer because on one hand, the internet 
has led us to like the open theism of information access. Like we have so many possibilities. <laughs> There's right. so many possibilities before us. Like we literally can discover more theology, more information about religion and uh, historicity than ever before has been accessible. Like it is the printing press of our generation, of our yeah. era of history. But on the other hand, I don't know if it's good or bad to have theology be algorithmic. Like I'm really glad you brought that up, Stephen. Because I think that's exactly what can happen regardless of social media platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the algorithms produce a different perception depending on who we are and our activity and who we like interacting with and who we don't. Well, yeah, the algorithm kicks it off and it's like what their infrastructure is based on. But what it, it encourages like direct conscious action from me where, you know, you like someone from a friend who made fun of this particular person. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll follow this person because we have at least this in common. And yeah. like that encourages that silo effect. Right. But is that any different from the silo effect of Christianity historically? Like historically, <laughs> you were only probably not. You were only um, you were only exposed to like one certain branch of Christianity usually. Right. Right. Wow. And imagine those before Internet. I like that. I'm thinking, so if it used to be that way before and there was the, you know, every town had its post office and church and bar. Not in that order. Not in that order sometimes. But um, if every town had that, you were exposed to this one version of it. And then the internet came along and you were like, oh, wow. Like, I've always been curious or skeptical of what my Presbyterian pastor always preached to me. And then you hear a Lutheran or a Methodist start preaching because mm-hmm. of the internet and you're like whoa look at that i can go over there now but never leave my physical place like i can keep paying the mortgage i still have but i can like go to church i mean like that's what covid offered us in like a very backhanded way but like i can go to church anywhere in the world because every church now recognizes that they need online services if i agree with sean Foyt about one thing <laughs> it's that i do think the church has left the building but it's in the digital space <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So like if the village was really small and confined and you were only exposed to the things you were exposed to because of like the other 500 people in the town, the internet brought you endless possibility of finding other people more like you. And that the only thing that was not in common was (laughs) like the physical place you live. It's like the world exploded and we hit this like huge outgrowth like big bang of information. But now it feels like the the whole world is just now like the small village again. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because now we've found our people, but mm. these people live in Australia or Canada or in Bristol, England. Do you think therefore it's more likely to form communities or even theology that is more insular? Yes. That yeah. is the, I'm so glad you said it that way. Cause I think that is spot on. Because, like, some people talk about, like, the anti-fundamentalism becoming the new fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Like, you can be, like, fundamentalist Mm. about anything. And, like, you, like, reject something so hard you become the thing, almost. I think it does do that. Do we think... Is that a problem? I think it's a problem. To have insular communities? Yeah. I think it Mm. can be. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Help me nuance, then. Because my gut says, like, I think being that insular is bad. But Emily doesn't like the word bad, so. I don't like the word bad. Help me no. out then. Hmm. Well, first, the question is, why Why do you think it's bad? Because I think I value, I think I value diversity. <laughs> and I want, I want a community that is, is diverse enough that I'm continuing to be challenged. Okay. How diverse? Like, because we like to use the word diversity. Yeah. A lot. But then really, when we look at what people are using to define it, like to define diversity, hmm. then we take a step back. And we go, that's not really all that diverse. <laughs> well, OK, so as long as last episode and this episode, Calvinism is coming up a lot and reform theology is coming up a lot. Hands down, the author I own the most books from is Tim Keller. And I think that's important for me. Like, I think it's important that I continue to read works like that. Even if I find myself disagreeing at some points, like I want, I want an excuse to, you know, venture into someone else's camp and make friends Mm -hmm. and maybe excuse is the right word for it. I'm just like, here's an in 
so that like if I meet someone at a coffee shop that goes to a very reformed church in Billings, like I can be like, oh, I've at least read Tim Keller. Like, let's find some common ground, even if we come to different conclusions. Um, mm-hmm. So if you so if you're in a group, you would be completely fine with being the sole person in the group that has your opinion and everyone else all had entirely different opinions. Well, this okay. so this gets down to what I feel like is the crux of what I've always wanted Ravel to be is that there's like a belief or a theology or maybe just an attitude behind the specific theology, you know, like I can talk about predeterminism all I want and maybe we all don't disagree, but there's like, there's something back behind. It's like the theological cosmic background radiation that it's like, we all agree that we can be in community and act lovingly and kindly toward each other. Even if we come to different conclusions about specific theologies, Okay, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe that would be, where it breaks down because I, I feel like that resonates the most with, I've with what I view as like the universal Catholic church is that we're all just, we're all attempting to understand and follow Christ as best we understand it. And if we understand it differently, we at least have a common ground that we're like, we're trying to do that together. Okay. Which I feel like opens up a lot of capital D diversity at that point, mm-hmm. which at the very beginning, Josh, when you presented the first tweet about Swiss, French, like we need to understand that some theologies aren't neutral and yet we assume they are. I wonder how much I feel like the challenge comes in is in particular when we talk about theology, like we're talking about things at a scale of like creator God in the existence of the observable universe. Like we're literally trying to speak in universals. So it's easy to lose the specificity of John Calvin lived in Switzerland in like the 1600s. So do you think then that theology being algorithmic on the internet, do you think it's more important or like it doesn't change to know who a theology originated with? You know what I mean? Oh, say that again. Like because it's not completely decentralized, like some things are more or less decentralized on the internet, but like in terms of discovery of new ideas, like it's not always easy to trace back who came up with something. Like you can maybe Mm. point back to a viral tweet or like a post that went really big, but like if someone doesn't quote their source, like you Mm. might not know where an idea came from. Like so does the algorithm make it even more important to know where things come from, theology-wise? Or is it like just the same level of importance as it's always been? I feel like it raises the stakes on the amount of time or like the commitment you have to know that background, though that algorithm is actively disincentivizing that kind of study, that kind of action, right? Hmm. This is a brand new thought to me. Yeah. Yeah, same here. I mean, does that make sense? Does that make sense the way I've just framed that? It's like to some people, I think they would value that even more is like once once they realize it's not easy to ad- identify an origin or a source. But it yeah, I agree that it's not easy, but I think that's why it's important. Is it that simple though as like if it matters to you then it doesn't or that it does? Mm-hmm. Is there a way you can argue that it is like objectively important that we put in that work now and that we need to yeah convince yeah i think that that that's what i would argue for okay have you guys heard of like the fake c.s lewis quotes yes yes Yes. but i think that's that's why it's important because like i think that that's a great example of how we shouldn't act like theology happens in a vacuum wow like someone at some point came up with it and they were a real person sometime somewhere yeah just like jesus was like if like christians love to talk about the historicity of jesus I think we should almost equally, if not equally, talk about the historicity and context of theologians. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like Bonhoeffer, like we talked about Bonhoeffer a couple episodes ago, right? Like him talking about civil disobedience and pacifism. It's extremely important to know his context. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I got to talk about that with Jeff on his No Normal People episode. Oh, fun. 
That was very helpful. Josh, I really, I really like that, especially like how I mentioned earlier, like womanist theology. It's so important to pay respect and homage to the women who actually influenced that and to know the history behind it, knowing mm. that it is coming from a particular context, black women speaking on theology like that is so important we need to make sure that we pay dues where they are meant to be given Mm -hmm. well maybe to do that a little bit who has been a major influence for you guys theologically Ooh, who's the unsung hero of your biographical work of theology that is your life unsung huh like, I think we know our top contenders. Like, we all name drop some people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are definitely recognizable names that have been formative to me in the past. I mentioned Tim Keller already today. More recently, I feel like maybe representing the opposite side of whatever spectrum they land on. Rob Bell is another one that is, like, big for me. It's a joke now, but Richard Rohr is someone that I mention a lot. So to get those out of the way, I feel like, unfortunately, okay, I'll say, first of all, someone who is really transforming my thinking is she is a anonymous trans person that has recently, like, bumped into my universe through Dan Koch's You Have Permission. Uh, Sorry, Dan Koch would be another one that is very formative for me. But I've been listening to the podcast called Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. (laughs) And she is an anonymous trans woman who literally like every episode is just a Bible study with one of her friends. And I love it because it's refreshingly like it harkens back to a lot of like almost like evangelical roots that I have, like the way they're studying the Bible and the way they're talking about it is like, I can totally speak this language. I am totally in on the way you're talking about it. And then I guess speaking to the conversation we've had for the last hour, I hear it from a trans woman and I'm like, wow, like, like the world, like we can study the Bible. We can end up saying the same things, but my world is completely different from hers. And that has just been like transforming my thinking. And in a way I feel like it's been softening my heart toward youth pastors and youth leaders in particular in my past that I feel like, especially when I discovered Rob Bell. Like I I was told specifically by these youth leaders that Rob Bell was anti-Christ and leading Mm. people astray. Right. And then I discovered Rob Bell and I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is what we were worried about. And then I feel like starting there and up until very recently, basically like all my theological thought was like, what can I, what like established or maybe budding theology can I discover that is like the opposite of what those people taught me in youth group? Because I was like, if you were wrong about Rob Bell, what else are you wrong about? But now I feel yeah. like because of Trans Regret Snoopy's podcast, that's her moniker, by the way, because of her podcast and listening to that, I'm like, you know, I need to like, I feel like I need to come back to a center somewhere where I can like hold a measure of grace and a measure of forgiveness that I at least need to symbolically offer to those youth leaders that I feel like I rebelled against so long. Cause I'm coming back to a place where like, I don't necessarily think that those people were acting in bad faith. Like, I think they were handing me exactly what they thought was going to be the most life giving for me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I need to hold that space for them, you know? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. There are big names that I can name drop. And then there are very specific like people I grew up in my 30 person youth group that like yeah. formed my life, you know? And they are theologians. We're all, we are all theologians. Right. What about you, Emily? Um, so one, I guess if we're thinking like big name drops and kind of more not so well known, um, one big name is George E. Tink Tinker. He Whoa. is an amazing American Indian scholar, and he's really known for his Native American liberation theology. Whoa. Um, it's so profound. It's wonderful. And I think for me, it... I especially love reading his works and reading up on his uh, on his ideas coming back to a context that Native American culture and history is so important and our modern day 
interactions with Native Americans, especially like in the United Methodist Church, the work that we have with Native American Mm. pastors and reservations, it's so grounding and it's so, it's revitalizing in a way to have a theology that is not based on a white old dude. I love it. It's great. Another name drop, I guess, I'm hoping you, Robin Henderson Espinoza. Oh, yeah, I have heard that name. I haven't read anything from them, but... Yeah, she's a really respected leader with social justice movement. And she's a actually pretty well-known public theologian. She identifies as non-binary, transgender, um, and she's Latinx. And that, again, I think that's important to have that voice speaking so publicly and so profoundly to the face of injustices and to share good news and to share God's glory in a way that has not always been allowed to speak and has been looked down upon. I think she's really powerful. And Stephen, I would agree. I think those who I went to youth group with, you know, my church camp friends, my local pastors, they have all influenced my faith journey, my upbringing, how I view theology, how I theologize. And I, I want to pay homage to those people for sure, because they may not be big names to other people, but in my book, you know, they're, they're big names to me. And they're like the reason that I went and pursued my <laughs> career path and my call. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I I really respect that a lot. Your turn, Josh. I have a couple people that have come to mind in the time that I've listened to you two. <laughs> Nice. I was like trying to think of uh, nice, like some more unsung heroes that I definitely haven't mentioned before, because I don't know. It's easy for me to think of people I have mentioned, but first one that came to mind was this uh, preacher dude named Todd White. Some people might know that name. Wow, uh, he's pretty back. closely tied to Bethel. He's definitely a faith healer, and to be honest, I didn't realize how prosperity he was for a while, mm. but. Uh, a couple years ago, actually, probably like, oh my gosh, probably like seven years ago now, um, he majorly influenced me along with a lady that I had some mutual friends with. Her name was Lisa, and she's since passed away. But like the combination of him and her like dramatically changed the way that I tip at restaurants, like cu- trying to come at it from like a, he definitely came at it from a prosperity perspective, I now realize, but like I think I can still acknowledge that he changed the way that I viewed that as a pathway of generosity mm. and a way that I can love people as someone who's trying to be like Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Even without ulterior motives. Like to be honest, that's caused me to like think a lot and has been really formative for me about the way I think about and practice generosity. And I feel like he's a great example of like, someone who like I don't love admitting that I was influenced by in a major way yeah. but like <laughs> right. totally changed the way I thought about generosity completely mm. another person who I've realized has been really formative for me is this guy named James Hunter uh he's actually uh, an author and a well-known teacher in the servant leadership movement uh like he teaches like servant leadership summits at like big corporations and the military and like that's his living like it's crazy but the way he got big was he literally just wrote a book about how jesus is the best model of servant leadership and why Mm. we should follow that Mm. but he like approaches it from like a business angle and it's super interesting and um i've just realized in your sense that that was really pivotal for me and and then the other one who came to mind uh other than rachel held evans who i think a lot of people are familiar with yeah She's obviously very, very well respected and has taught a lot of people. Uh, the other person who came to mind for me in the digital space uh, is this woman named Emily Joy Allison. Um, some people might know that name, but for me in the digital world, she was my first exposure to someone who was a great, a, oh my gosh, a great Christian, a gay Christian. She was the mm. first person I saw online and mm. only because of the internet that I saw someone like this who was Christian and gay. And to me, that was pretty groundbreaking at the time and totally influential for my theology. And to me, that's a great example of like how our 
digital spaces influence our theology just as much as reading a book or knowing someone in person. Mm. Yeah. So those are uh, some of my unsung theology heroes, influencers. I love it. This discussion did not go where I expected it to go. This was really fascinating, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect us to talk about the internet at all. I'm glad we could indulge you. Um, I think we should shout out our newest patron who literally just joined during this episode. I'm so glad Shout you're doing this. to Brandon. Yes. Yay! Brandon officially bought our drinks. Thank um, you. After the fact. <laughs> I guess we should say, if you're considering signing up for Patreon and you really want to make our day, we record, <laughs> we record Ravel at 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. <laughs> So if you want to like hop in while we're recording, there it is. Sunday afternoon. There it is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brandon. That was that was a delight to see as we were speaking. That was yeah. so fun. Do wow. you guys have any uh closing thoughts? Any questions, comments, or concerns? You know I guess Oh yeah, please well, Emily. Go ahead, you go, Steve. go ahead, Steve. No, you go ahead, Stephen. Okay. Um what became apparent to me as you guys were speaking was that I have some work to do. I have some people to listen to. Um, if we're talking about Native American liberation theology or or Josh speaking to your first exposure to like a, a gay and Christian person, I became mindful of the fact that all the guys I name dropped were are like white men. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it just it, it revealed something to me that I'm going to be uh, thinking about later tonight and mm. from now on because i think like it would be easy for me to like backpedal and just be like wait no like i i forgot these people um mm. but uh, you you have introduced me to new names that i intend to look into because these are all places that i want to go and be open to well i'd yeah. like i'd also like to point out that i think that that is representative of the fact that the tweet that i mentioned at the beginning was trying to highlight is that white european theology is treated like the norm totally Right. And that's totally a byproduct of lots of things. Like, I think the reality is, is there are more academic white male theologians. So, like, it's just more likely that we'll know those names. Like, I totally listen. Absolutely. And have read more books from white males than anyone else. Right. <laughs> that's just the reality. Indeed. And uh, I don't think you should, like, feel ashamed of that, Stephen. I, but I do think it's very, I think it's very valiant to, like, be willing to learn from other people who have different perspectives on the traditions and the texts that we were raised with. Cause like, I yeah. feel like if we've highlighted anything in this conversation, it's that very obviously different perspectives of different places and times will reveal to us different things. Absolutely. And I like that. Thank you for that. Yeah. I guess I wasn't feeling shame. It was just, it okay, was, good. it was more of a, it was like a light bulb came on or curiosity like, uh-huh. just flickered. Mm-hmm. And okay, I was like, cool, Oh, cool. look at that. Like I had never, again, highlighting the, the original point is like, I had never even considered that that was even like a blind spot or something to pay attention to. Even I was sure. like, well, it's just, they're theologians. I'm going to get a variety of, cause we can, we can talk about all the guys I named and they all have very unique perspectives Oh yeah. that don't necessarily align, but they do have something in common. And again, like I guess they're all American too. So mm, there we are. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, Emily. I guess like throughout this whole conversation in the back of my head, I was just thinking, thank God I went to Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Like hmm. there are so many places that I could have pursued my divinity degree and I I had options of what kind of theologies I wanted to be exposed to or not be exposed to, to put it in a different way. Wow. And Garrett, I think, presented a good balance. One, not only of learning of different theologians and contextually the importance of that, but having them taught by people who were of different contexts and different theological backgrounds, that they weren't all Methodist pastors or all white men or whatever. It was a diverse background. And so they were able to bring to light these theologies and these theologians in a way that was 
I want to say more wholesome. Like I, I really do want to honor that. Um, and I don't want to discredit, like not all old white people are like bad. <laughs> like if I, if I have an old white person who's going to present a theology to me, I'm not going to automatically just disregard it. Mm. But I do think hearing about womanist theology from an African-American woman is more wholesome than hearing it from someone who is not a part of that community or has an understanding in a deeper sense. Totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm just really grateful that I was able to pursue that and have that opportunity to learn and to now bring all of that knowledge and still learning to a context that is completely different than what Garrett's context was hmm. like it. Garrett being in Evanston, not far from Chicago is a very diverse place and living in Cody, Wyoming is not as diverse, right? <laughs> there is diversity, but not in the same light as where my seminary was located. And so I'm just really fortunate that I have the chance as a pastor to bring some of these theologians to the surface and to have people go, oh, like a Stephen moment where a light bulb went off. Um, that warms my heart as a person, as a pastor to say, yes, there are so many voices and so many points in history that we can learn and see God's presence and try to ravel out and make sense of God in the world. And these are some of the many voices that we have right. to share. I, and I just love that. Yeah, I guess it's pretty emblematic that like the person I probably talked about the most is trans regret Snoopy. Cause it's like a very new voice to me. And it is, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those people that kind of, she embodies what I was trying to get at before is like where I d value diversity, where I'm looking for, you know, like we have some form of common ground way back there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And yet we all have an attitude that we can like belong in the same space, whether online or physical. She, she is like, what I feel is like the advent of that new attitude and that you guys helped me realize describing, you know, Native American theology or queer theology. So, wow, look at that. Josh, well, do you have any closing thoughts? No, I don't think I do. Do you have a, uh, a benediction for us? I think I might, yeah. Past, present, future, theologians alike. We are all trying to make sense and process how we see God in the world, whether in a physical space, a virtual space, how theology will change, if it does change at all. It's just another way for us to make sense of this world and to come together and see just how unified we can be in the midst of diversity and change. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Every episode, we pair a new and delicious cocktail with a roundtable discussion about philosophy, politics, or current events. Whether we're tackling the January 6th Capitol riots or Twitter's censorship faux pas, we aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our world. Or we discuss the unanswerable philosophical questions like if mankind is fundamentally good or evil. And I discover I might be a communist. So follow the Whiskey Bench if you're into questions like these. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.